Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing a very special series called Israel 2018. So let's go to Dr. John Newfeld now as he brings us a message entitled Jesus the Early Years and focus on his time in the Galilee. our one-week encounter in the Holy Land, we're going to try to visualize an experience in Israel which we've entitled Encountering God in the Promised Land. And yesterday, I tried to take you to the caves at Qumran, close to the Dead Sea, in order to get a picture that our Bible is indeed an accurate and a true accounting of history. The Bible records, as 2 Corinthians 5.19 so well reminds us, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And that's the theme of the entire Bible, the the theme that was played out in Iran, in Iraq, in Jordan, in Syria, in Egypt, in Greece, in Cyprus, and in Italy. But most notably, that story was played out in Israel, the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. Of course, Israel was the place where Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man, lived, ministered, died, and was raised to life. Israel is the land of Jesus. Moses was in Egypt. Daniel was in Iran or Persia. David fought wars in Jordan, and Paul went all the way to Italy, but the only place Jesus ever visited was Israel. And so today, let's talk about the early years of Jesus' ministry. When I teach through the tour of Israel, I love to start in the ancient ruins of Caesarea. You know, there's a large theater there. It overlooks the Mediterranean Sea, and you can see a large part of an ancient Roman aqueduct that starts from a water source in the hills so many kilometers away, and then it brought fresh water to Caesarea. You see the ruins of an ancient hippodrome where the Romans would love to watch horse races and the ruins of an ancient harbor that was built by King Herod the Great. It would allow the ships to come in and out of Israel. I love to start our journey there. And I noticed that for Israel, this is an amazing place. It's not called Jerusalem, the city of peace, or Bethlehem, the house of bread, or Hebron, where just outside of that city is the place where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah are buried. Now, this place does not call to mind biblical figures. Rather, it's named after Augustus Caesar. Now, how did such a thing come to be? And it is in that place that I like to give a brief overview of the Bible. I start with a promise of Abraham, then to Moses, then to Joshua, taking the promised land, and then to King David. Then I tell of that horrible time in history when when Israel as a nation suffered a schism between north and south, and eventually the last of the Jewish people were defeated by the Babylonians and lived in exile so far away from the promised land. But God brought them back, and that's where the First Testament ends. The people of God return and they rebuild a temple and are looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. But by the time we get to the New Testament and the arrival of Jesus, We have this city in Israel named Caesarea, with Roman garrisons and a Roman governor. I mean, what in the world happened from the end of the First Testament to the beginning of the New? Well, in order to tell that story without boring everyone to tears, I usually tell people that they need to remember four groups of people. The Ptolemies, the Seleucids, the Hasmoneans, and finally the Romans. So think of it this way. When the First Testament ends, the Jews have come back to the Promised Land, and they're still governed by the Persian Empire. But as we know from history, the rising Greek Empire destroyed the Persian Empire, and Alexander the Great took to conquering a great portion of the world, including Israel. 
But Alexander died suddenly and his empire was divided into four sections. And one of those sections was in Egypt. And you may know that today, the second largest city in Egypt is the city of Alexandria. It's named after Alexander and also the headquarters of the great section of his kingdom. See, that empire was ruled by a group of rulers known as the Ptolemies, and they extended their rule and also governed Israel. But the Ptolemy rulers were basically good to Israel, and they also brought Greek civilization to Israel. And during that time in 250 BC, the first ever Bible translation took place. The Old Testament was translated into the Greek language, and by the way, When you read the New Testament today, all those quotations from the Old Testament, well, they are from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translation that was done when Greek learning and Greek culture and Greek language were prevalent in Israel during the Ptolemies. And then things changed dramatically and suddenly. Another part of Alexander's old empire, the Seleucids from Syria, north of Israel, well, they invaded and they drove out the Ptolemies, and Israel found itself under the brutal rule of the Syrians, known as the Seleucids. Now, during that time, the Syrian king was a man named Antiochus. He took the name Epiphanes, which means God manifest. He believed he was God. He entered the Jewish temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. He raised a statue to Zeus in the altar. Imagine a Greek idol in the Jewish temple. The prophet Daniel predicted that event. He called it the abomination that causes desolation. Antiochus, we're told, is a forerunner of the Antichrist. And Antiochus crucified faithful Jews. He massacred many and he tried to forcibly convert them to the Greek gods. And then, against all odds, led by a Jewish priest, Judas Maccabees, the Jews drove out the Syrians. It was a classic David against Goliath war, but the Jews prevailed. And the darkness of Antichrist was rolled back. The Jewish people still celebrate that event. It's called Hanukkah today. And that brings us to the third period, the period of the reign of the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans were a family of Jewish priests And all the rulers of Israel were from that priestly family. Now, that family of Jewish priests ruled Israel for a hundred years from 164 to 63 BC. And during that time, or just before it, while they were driving the Syrians out, the Pharisees began. A group of priests determined to cleanse Israel from their sins and bring them to faithfulness to the law. But over the years, this Hasmonean family and the temple priesthood, well, they became overwhelmingly corrupt. Well, in desperation, the Jewish people took action against their own people. And listen to this. They invited the new growing world empire to come in and to clean up their corruption, provide a stable and consistent government. No, no, the Romans didn't invade Israel. Israel invited them in to stop their own corruption. But of course, they invited the devil in. In 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey took control over Israel. He sent his second in command to enter the temple, but in horror, the Jews refused him access. And in response, Pompey mounted a siege and thousands of Jews were massacred and Pompey himself entered into the holy place, into the temple. And from that moment on, the Jews seethed with hatred of Rome, pleading with God, that he would send his Messiah, his chosen one, to sit on David's throne and bring about the kingdom of heaven. 
That's why in Luke chapter 2, verse 38, we read of Anna. She was an 84-year-old widow who never left the temple and was constantly worshiping and fasting night and day, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She was waiting for the long night of oppression in that city to come to an end. And when Joseph and Mary brought the baby Jesus into the temple, this woman Anna was moved by the Spirit to approach the couple, and by a word of prophecy, she spoke of this child that he was the hope that Israel was waiting for. And when Jesus began his public ministry, his very first message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's not a soul who heard him who didn't wonder if this was not the long-expected one who would finally deliver the Jewish people from the bondage of Roman oppression and bring them out of their own sin. See, you can't understand Jesus or his message without Caesarea. And if you have a chance to come with us and sit in that ancient theater, looking over the breathtaking beauty of the Mediterranean Sea, you'll be led to consider the confluence of events that brought Jesus onto the stage of history and of the deep, heartfelt longing of a people who yearned and prayed for and waited for the coming of the Messiah. And as Isaiah the prophet said so well 750 years earlier, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. (laughs) Indeed, that's how the adventure of Jesus begins. Against the background of real historical political events, anyone going to Israel is invited to relive the coming of Jesus. Do you have to go to Israel to understand your Bible? Of course not. But being there helps you to visualize what you read. You know, I often tell people who come, they're never going to read their Bible the same way again. Indeed, it will come alive with history and geography. Indeed, going there will be the richest Bible study they have ever had. I constantly remind people that we're not tourists, but we're pilgrims, pilgrims who have come to read our Bible and pilgrims who have come to see the hand of God. Our second edition of Dr. John Newfeld's booklet, What is the Gospel?, has just arrived and is ready to go. This booklet provides the essentials of the gospel, God's provision, the price that was paid, and our hope for eternity. This is a wonderful tool for the follower of Jesus who needs to be assured, or for the one searching to discover what a relationship with Jesus really means. Right now, we want to offer What is the Gospel as our free gift to anyone who's never contacted us before. If this is your first time contacting us, we'd be blessed to send you Dr. John's booklet, What is the Gospel, as our gift to you. We believe it will encourage, inform, and transform your understanding and relationship to Jesus. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 to receive your free copy of What is the Gospel. Israel is easily divided between north and the south. In the time of the First Testament, the north, well, it was the center of idolatry in the south. In Jerusalem, well, there was the place where the temple was, the temple of the God of Israel. And during the time of Jesus, the north was called Galilee, and the south, Judea. And if you go to Nazareth in Galilee, not far from the actual precipice of the hill from which they wanted to throw Jesus, you'll find a hiking trail. 
It's been open to the public since November of 2011. And Kathy and I have hiked this trail. It's about 60 kilometers long. It takes about four days. And it follows some of the ancient paths between Nazareth and Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It kind of gives you an excellent opportunity to get a sense of what it was like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Once one gets to Capernaum, one comes to ground zero of Jesus' early ministry, all in Galilee in the north. Capernaum became his home base, and from there, he would have walked all over Galilee. You know, there's some 204 villages there, and, and each one of them would have heard the gospel of the kingdom of God. But it was just outside of Capernaum that he preached his famous Sermon on the Mount. It was in Capernaum that he did a great many of his miracles, including the healing of the paralytic. And remember, Jesus began by saying that his sins were forgiven, and everyone in Capernaum was horrified. And then he said, well, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to rise up and walk. You know, it's in Capernaum that he healed a centurion servant with just a word. And it was in Capernaum that they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast them out. It was also just outside of Capernaum along a major highway, which was then called the Via Maris, that Jesus called Matthew to leave his tax booth and follow him. It was in Capernaum that tax collectors and sinners gathered to hear him. It was just outside of Capernaum on Peter's fishing boat that that Jesus told Peter, don't be afraid, from now on you'll be catching men. And it was also just outside of Capernaum that he chose the 12 to be his apostles. And if you go to Capernaum today, you'll find the excavated ruins of a small fishing village. At one end of the ruins are the remains of an old Jewish synagogue. It was built in the fourth century after Christ. But if you go to the outside of that synagogue, you're going to see that it was built on the remains of older stones, blackened ones. And there was an older synagogue, the very synagogue where Jesus did so much of his teaching and his miracles. And so if you sit in the ruins of the synagogue there and you pray, you're going to marvel that at this tiny little place to which no one would ever come, except this, that the greatest ministry that the world has ever seen started right there. Jesus told a parable. It's found in Matthew 13, 31 to 32. Matthew records Jesus as saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. In this parable, Jesus lets his disciples know that that which looks so small and insignificant now will become the biggest thing the earth has ever seen. So I want you to imagine sitting in the synagogue in Capernaum. Peter once lived there along with Matthew and the others. The news cameras of the world were not focused on what was done there. The miracles, the calming of the sea, the driving out of demons, the the many who journeyed there from around the villages of Galilee just to hear him and to touch him. Well, Galilee knew that in Judea and in Jerusalem, no one really cared. And they certainly didn't care in Rome. It all seemed so small and contained. But if you sit on the steps of that old ruined synagogue, be amazed at the millions and millions and millions of people who have journeyed there for hundreds and hundreds of years just to sit where Jesus did and to walk the streets where he walked and to still sense that his spirit is present. There's a final note about Capernaum. In the end, that village would reject him. 
Jesus said if the miracles that were done in that small village had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, the wicked citizens of Sodom would have repented, but not the citizens of Capernaum. Of course, Galilee is about so much more than Capernaum. Many who go to Israel are moved to take a boat ride from Capernaum to Tiberias and imagine Jesus calming the storm and walking on the water. An especially important visit is to travel to Caesarea Philippi, a place also known as Banias today. It's about 45 kilometers northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And in a cliff near that place was considered the the birthplace of the Greek god Pan. The place was the home base of the cult of Pan worship, but the place is also littered with temples of Syrian gods. It's a high place for pagan worship. And in this place where the world offers up its options, where its gods are on display with all their glory and splendor, Jesus took his small group of disciples deliberately there of all places, and in this place he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then he asks, who do you say that I am? Against the background of an abundance of religious choices, Jesus demands an answer. He deliberately sets himself against the background of the world's religions. And in that place, Peter stepped to the fore and said with great confidence, that which every follower of Jesus has repeated after him, I know precisely who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, if you go to Caesarea Philippi, the context for that encounter will make that story live. And with that, Jesus revealed his plan to them. They would move from the confines of comfortable Galilee, travel to Jerusalem. I can almost imagine the disciples' eyes lighting up. Well, finally, we're going to get to the big time. Judea, Jerusalem, the seat of David's ancient throne, the the renewal of all things. But Jesus, as we know, had other plans. He would go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. You know, in our travels in Galilee, I've not yet mentioned the plains of Megiddo or the valley of Armageddon. I've not mentioned Canaan, where he did his first miracle, or Nain, where he raised the widow's son, or Mount Carmel, where Elijah did his great work. But we have seen enough to know that this green, luscious farming region is home of the beginnings of the gospel. When God became a man and began to manifest his glory, when he would open our eyes to a Savior, he began his work in that place. I have a memory of Capernaum that will live with me forever. It was on our first trip that Kathy and I ever took to the Holy Land. And not far from there is the traditional area where after Christ's resurrection, you'll remember the disciples went back to Capernaum. They started to fish. Not far from the shoreline is the place where Peter and the resurrected Jesus went for a walk. Three times Jesus asked Peter the same question. Peter, do you love me? And if you've never understood that account, remember that after each time when Peter said, Lord, I love you, Jesus simply said, feed my lambs. Here's the context. Peter is still burdened by the fact that he, when when the chips were down, well, he denied Jesus not once but three times. And Peter may have wondered whether he was ever worthy to follow Jesus again. But the very words, feed my lambs, told Peter Jesus had not rejected him at all, but he would not fail to use him in a great way for his kingdom. And so on my first encounter with the Sea of Galilee, I I left our tour group and I went on my own for a little walk on that very shoreline where Jesus and Peter had walked so many years earlier. I imagined and reimagined that scene for they walked somewhere close to where I now was. And then suddenly I felt that I too was walking with Christ and he too was asking me the very same question. John, do you love me? And to be truthful like Peter, I felt so unworthy to be called to ministry. 
And Kathy took a picture of me there and standing off in the distance by myself, just me far away alone on the beach. The camera doesn't catch my face, and I'm glad for that because I guess I was just weeping openly. Jesus was reaffirming in me a call to ministry. I, like Peter before me, was telling Jesus that he knew all things, and he knew that I loved him. And I felt him speaking the same words, feed my sheep. And for me, the promised land will always be just that. It's a place to renew one's spiritual life and to look for a personal renewal and a reawakening of spiritual passion. It will help us experience the very places where Jesus walked, but almost, well, almost inexplicably. Many Christians have spoken of encounters with Christ, a new calling to trust him, to believe him, to follow him afresh, and to ask Christ to use them in whatever ministry that he designs for them. See, it's not just a place to revisit archaeological sites and and to have reasons for our own faith. It's a place also to renew our faith. It's to become very personal with our own faith. It's a place for us to feel the calling again and to know that Jesus not only acted among his disciples, he continues to act among all who would follow him today. John, I got to be honest, the first time I went to Israel, this is a question that I had in my mind was, you know, is this the actual site or is this just somebody's thought that it's close to the site or it's a figurative thing or an illustrative thing? What is it? What are we seeing when we go to Israel? Yeah, and it depends on exactly where where you are. And I'd love to say that when you come back to the Bible, Ben, uh, we'll tell you uh, when, in fact, we're not sure about a site and when we're certain. So, for instance, if you go to Capernaum, that's it. There's no doubt whatsoever. And the synagogue that's built there is exactly on top of the synagogue where Jesus would have worshipped. Uh, And so we know that for certain. Uh, We're also told, for instance, that there's some argument whether or not, you know, Cana of Galilee is in fact the the same site. And so, you know, there are some places where, you know, archaeologists will sometimes disagree with one another and we want to be as, you know, as uh, as clear with with God's people as we possibly can. Um, So, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, some places are certainly the site. We know that with absolute certainty. And that's really the wonder of going there. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for our continuation of the series, Israel 2018, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Now's the time to be thinking about a family getaway this coming winter. Time to get away to enjoy fun, fellowship, laughter, restore yourself while being spiritually refreshed. That's right. Join Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway for our fifth anniversary Laugh Again Caribbean cruise. Sail the seas, enjoy the beach, spend time in worship with special musical guest Rika, and take in special opportunities to share in our morning devotions and special events and activities. This is an opportunity for the entire family and a time to celebrate God's incredible faithfulness. So join Phil and friends this coming February 3rd to the 10th, 2019, on one of the Royal Caribbean's greatest ships, the Oasis of the Seas, as we sail the Caribbean. Call us today for details at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at laughagain.ca.